as we together prepare to hear God's Word this morning, I'm going to ask you to open your Bible with me to Matthew chapter 27. As today is the day that we celebrate Easter or Resurrection Sunday, as well as um, participate in the Lord's Supper together, we have these wonderful um, elements that we consider today, the death and resurrection of Christ. And so to begin with, I want to read together, listen as I read God's Word out of Matthew 27. I'm going to begin in verse 27, and just listen closely as I read God's Word, and then we pray, and then begin to consider some glorious thoughts about the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. As they went out, or verse 27, the soldiers of the governor took Jesus into the governor's headquarters and together the whole battalion before him. And they stripped him and put a scarlet robe on him and twisted together a crown of thorns and they put it on his head and they put a reed in his right hand and kneeling before him, they mocked him, saying, Hail, King of the Jews. And they spit on him and took the reed and struck him on the head. And when they had mocked him, they stripped him of the robe and put his own clothes on him and led him away to be crucified. As they went out, they found a man of Cyrene, Simon by name, and they compelled this man to carry his cross. And when they came to the place called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, they offered him wine to drink mixed with gall, but when he tasted it, he would not drink it. And when they had crucified him, they divided his garments among them by casting lots. Then they sat down and kept watch over him there. And over his head, they put the charge against him, which read, This is Jesus, the King of the Jews. Then two robbers were crucified with him, one on the right and one on the left, and those who passed by derided him, wagging their heads and saying, You who would destroy the temple and rebuild it in three days, save yourself. If you are the Son of God, come down from the cross. So also the chief priests with the scribes and elders mocked him, saying, He saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the King of Israel. Let him come down now from the cross and we will believe in him. He trusts in God. Let God deliver him now if he desires, for he said, I am the son of God. And the robbers who were crucified with him also reviled him in the same way. Verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani. That is my God, my God. Why have you forsaken me? And some bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling for Elijah. And one of them ran at once and took a sponge and filled it with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the other said, wait, let's see whether Elijah will come to save him. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of their tomb after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. When the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, 
Truly, this was the Son of God. Let's pray. Our Lord and Father, we are so thankful to you for your kindness to us once again to allow us to come this morning to this place together in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, today, as we take some time to consider the blessed reality of the death and resurrection of our Savior, Lord, of this event that absolutely transformed history and established your unchangeable truth for all generations, and that you by your word and spirit have made known to us, God, we are thankful. And we pray that as we consider these events historically, as we consider the significance of these things that you accomplished in the death and resurrection of Christ, God, that much like these men that stood at the foot of the cross, that we would stand in awe, recognizing you are the Son of God, that you are the one who saves all who would be saved. And we just pray that you would grant everyone here ears to hear. Enable me, God, to speak your word faithfully and clearly. We pray that you would be pleased and glorified. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, as we take up the consideration of this this morning, we know that all over the world in churches, there is the recognition of Jesus' death and resurrection that's taking place. We also know and we enter into the fact that this is the most significant historic event in human history. In spite of the miscalculations of things before... in. Now, most of us were, were alive at a time before they started to change it to before common era and the common era, BCE and CE. What was it called? BC and AD, before Christ. And, we rec and, then, and, and then after, and we recognize that this is the event that all human history, even, even in unbelieving mankind, pivoted on the recognition of who Jesus Christ is and what he accomplished. And one of the most profound and powerful mysteries that the world has ever seen, God has been pleased to make known to us, and it makes everything different. The world, if you travel the world over, there are religions in all places. There are all kinds of cults and all kinds of practices and all kinds of beliefs. But we are blessed because in the midst of all of these ideas of men, all of these practices of communities and cultures, God himself sent his son into this world to make known who is God, what is true, and the singular source of salvation being Jesus Christ. He did it in a way that was so definitive that though men can deny it and though some doubt it, they must strain themselves because history, scripture, and personal testimony and experience of God's people 
all come together in a loud resounding chorus to recognize these glorious truths. I want us to see that as we take this up, that what took place in those days was, first of all this morning, it was a definite plan with promise. When we come to the book of Acts, it tells us these wonderful words in that sermon that Peter delivered on the day of Pentecost. It says these words in Acts chapter 2, verse 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Do you hear that? I mean, when you start to hear that, Jesus died, but it was not possible for death to hold him. For all else, it was not possible for men to overcome death. This is not possible for men to escape death. Here is Christ, the Son of God made man, and it is not possible for death to hold him. What a distinctiveness. But it's the definitive plan that he would be handed over, that he would be killed, and it comes with promise, but God raised him. It says this as it states these uh, circumstances again in Acts chapter 4. After experiencing persecution, the early apostles gathered together with that early church in Acts chapter 4, verse 27 and 28. And as they prayed to God, they said these words, For truly there were in this city gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel. So all the leaders, the Gentiles, the people of Israel, all gathered against him. And look what it says in Acts 4.28. To do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. What a wonderful confidence. What a wonderful reality. God is not a God who is simply making plans on the fly. He's not trying to come up with, with momentary solutions to the problems of this world. The scripture actually tells us in the book of Re Revelation regarding Christ who is the Lamb of God. That the book of the Lamb, the Lamb's book of life was written before the foundation of the world. That Christ would come into the world and be slain for the remission of sin was always the plan of God. It was his definite plan. It was his fixed purpose. And people often confuse the idea of the definite plan and foreknowledge. The reason why God knows all things in advance is because he has planned them in advance. And, and it is all known to him. If God had not wanted it, if God had wanted to intervene, could he not have? Even as Jesus is going to the Garden of Gethsemane after the, uh, the time of the meal with his disciples, he says, well, what shall I say? Shall I pray for this not to come? But for this purpose, I have come. He knew his purpose. 
He knew the design. It was one fraught with difficulty and fraught with pain. But Jesus knew it well. Really, the scriptures are filled with the fact that this was a definite plan and promise of God. We know that with regard to his birth, even his birth mentioned in Matthew 1.22 was fulfilling the promise that a virgin would be with child and give birth to the one who would be Savior. On to the days of, of even his baptism, fulfilling that purpose. So from birth to baptism, suffered to, be so, to fulfill all righteousness. Everything that Jesus did was fulfilling the perfect plan of God. It all had purpose and it was filled with promise. Listen to this, even as we consider the words of Christ as he prepares himself. I'm just going to go through a few sections in Mark. Jesus in his ministry, in, in communicating with his disciples, would often tell them, of exactly what was going to happen. Because sometimes people will say, well, Acts is after the fact. They're just trying to speak of. These are the things Jesus spoke to them in his life. In Mark chapter 8, verse 31, it says this. And he began to teach them, his disciples, saying, The Son of Man must suffer many things, be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes, and be killed, and after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. <laughs> so even his disciples says, that can't be. There's no way that can happen. The plan of God established in perfect wisdom, men think they have better plans, even Peter. Men's plans, plans are not better than God's. Men think that they can find their own way of salvation. Men cannot make their own way of salvation. There is only the way that is provided by God. And that is in Christ. Now later in Mark chapter 9, one chapter later, verse 30. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And he did not want anyone to know. For he was teaching his disciples and saying to them, the son of man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Verse 32 says, but they did not understand what he was saying. What? How is that hard to understand? Handed over, killed, in three days he will rise. Well, the, part of the reason why in Luke chapter 18, in the same parallel, it says it like this. They understood none of these things because this saying was hidden from them. They did not grasp it. One chapter later in Mark 10 verse 32, it says this. And while they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, Jesus walking ahead of them. And they were amazed. And those who, who were following were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to them, saying, We are going to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes. They will condemn him to death, deliver him over to the Gentiles. They will mock him and spit on him, flog him and kill him, and after three days he will rise again. Now, when we see that, we recognize Jesus didn't simply have a vague concept of what was coming. 
he knew in pointed detail the very plan of his father. He knew every little step involved, every bit of pain, and every bit of mocking, every bit of humiliation and debasing. He knew all that he would face, and he submitted to it. He was obedient, even unto death, death on the cross. Really, when we see that it was hidden from them, in the opening uh, this, of service this morning, Doug read from Isaiah 53, and I'd like to uh, draw your attention to that chapter for a moment. Because much like that, it's, uh, when Jesus had told them very plainly, and it, this was hidden from them, they didn't understand it. Isaiah 53 verse 1 says this, Who has believed what he has heard from us? Very similar to uh, even as Jesus spoke to them, we don't understand what you're saying. When the, when the women came back after Jesus had risen from the grave and they came back and told the disciples, he has risen just as he said. The scriptures tell us they did not believe them. The disciples themselves that Jesus had expressly told repeatedly, this is what's going to happen. And all those details happened. And then after three days, I'm going to rise again. They're told, it happened. And what does the scripture say? They did not believe them. Wow. And then when he would appear to them a week later, they would all believe. <laughs> Except Thomas, who wasn't there. And then when he would appear to them a week later, to Thomas as well, then suddenly he would say, my Lord and my God. He would understand that this one, this Jesus has risen. But until then, it was hidden. Even though the information was clear, even though it was seemingly simple to understand, until the Spirit of God, by the power of God, makes it known to men, they don't get it. Even those who had seen Jesus raise the dead. You remember in the ministry of Jesus, there was a widow in the village of Nain who was walking out. Her only son had died and they were carrying him out to bury him. And Jesus stopped and raised her son from the dead. Jesus went to another home where a little girl had been ill and before he reached the home, she had passed away. And as Jesus went in and told them that, he was, that she's just sleeping, they mocked him because they knew that she had died. And Jesus went in and he raised that little girl from the dead. Message came to Jesus that the one, the friend that he loved, Lazarus, was sick. And then he died. And Jesus came four days after Lazarus had died. And what did he do? They were hesitant to remove the stone from that grave because they were sure the stench of death and decay would have set in. But what does Jesus do? He stands there and says, Lazarus, come forth. And he brings him forth. And so here are these men who have seen that Jesus has manifest the power 
over death repeatedly. But he himself has now died. So maybe in their mind they're thinking, well, who will call him forth? Who will bring him back from the grave? It did not make sense entirely in their minds. But even if man cannot entirely make sense of it, what God's word says, what Jesus says will always prove true. When the angel would meet these women who have come to the tomb, they would say, why do you look for the living among the dead? Do you not remember what he said while he was with you? He has risen just as he said. Oh, and that's why Isaiah 53, 1 says, Who has believed what he has heard from us? And, and the second part of that verse, And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Who has God revealed his power to? Because there must be divine revelation, and we share it all the time. And you've probably spoken of Christ to friends, neighbors, loved ones, and they just look at you like, what are you talking about? Or maybe they generally agree with you but can't understand why it seems so important to you, why it seems to matter so much. They think that somehow th th those issues of truth and faith and uh, th those are small issues that we, we nod and agree with. They don't understand why is that the central reality of history, the central reality of all creation, and the absolute central glory of our own lives. Jesus Christ, the hope of glory, Christ in you. The one who now lives, not only lives and intercedes for us, but lives in us. And we, by his grace, live unto him. Goes on in Isaiah 53 to speak of the uniqueness of Christ in his life. There in verse 2, he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground, the simplicity and, and humble beginnings of Jesus' life. It goes on to speak of the days of his earthly ministry. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. Was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief, as one from whom men hid their eyes, and he was despised and we esteemed him not. Verse 4 says, Surely he has borne our griefs and our sorrows, carried away our sorrows, and we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God, and afflicted. Verse 4 is spoken of in Matthew chapter 8, 17. He bore our sorrows and carried away our griefs or our sicknesses. Matthew 8, 17 speaks of Christ having fulfilled that in his earthly ministry. So in his earthly ministry, he proved himself the Messiah by curing all the sick that were brought to him. But Proving himself by that miraculous ministry to be the Messiah was only one part of it. Because not only what he would accomplish in healing people physically in his earthly ministry, but the spiritual healing, wholeness, reconciliation that he would accomplish in his death. 
And that's why it says these as we transition to verse Isaiah 53, verse 5, and it moves from his life and ministry to his death. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. And upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And by his wounds we are healed. Amen? We remember that. That's what's quoted over in 1 Peter. By his wounds we are healed. The, the glorious reality of what Christ would do. It says back here in Isaiah... More than 700 years before Christ comes that he would be pierced for our iniquities. When you see that and when you read through this chapter, I want you to just note something. And I'm going to encourage you to do this on your own even through the, these coming days. Go back and read through this and see that Christ's coming was very specific. You're going to see the interesting phrase in there. He was pierced for our transgression he was chastised he was crushed for our iniquities the chastisement that was upon him brought us peace us us our it was very specific it was very personal it's not just he was he was pierced for transgression and for iniquities and for sin but for ours it was very, very specific, very personal. And more than that, it was, so in that specificity and personal nature of it, we see that it was substitutionary. Because who should pay the penalty for my sin? I should. But who paid it in my place? Christ. And we will find that all who by grace through faith come to Christ... They find full forgiveness in what Christ accomplished at the cross. What's, what's remarkable about this is not only do we see that it is specific and substitutionary, but very personal. I love the way, uh, that, but it's also successful. He was crushed for our transgressions, or pierced for our transgressions, still verse 5. He was crushed for our iniquities, and the chastisement that was upon him did what? It brought us peace it was successful he bore our sin he brought us peace not only that if you continue also on and we we how we see this unfold not only brought us peace by his wounds we are what we are healed it's important to see that it doesn't say by his wounds we can be healed we might be healed by his wounds, we are healed. By his punishment, we have peace. All that he stood in the place for will prosper in grace. Amen? It is glorious. So Jesus knew this plan. He, it was laid out. He knew that he was going to shed his blood for all whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. That book that will be opened on the final day. And everyone whose name is not written in that book is cast into the lake of fire. But all whose names are in that book, when you open the book of sin and iniquity and transgression. Our names are no longer in that book. 
Our chapters of all our wickedness have been, as it says in Colossians, torn out our certificate of debt and nailed to the cross. Amen. The price has been paid. His people have been set free. Love the way that it says it down at the end of verse 8. He was stricken for the transgression of my people. The great shepherd taking ownership. He laid down his life for his sheep. Oh, so wonderful, so powerful. The end of verse 11. To make me, by the knowledge, his knowledge shall many, shall the righteous one, my servant, make many be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. At the end of this uh, Verse 12, yet he bore the sins of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. That's such a glorious thing because there's two parts to that. You know what? On the cross, he paid the penalty for my sin. But he was not done with me. He who began a good work in you will bring it to completion in the day of Christ Jesus. And the scripture tells me he has ascended. He is at the right hand of the Father and ever lives to make intercession for me. He prays even as he did in his high priestly prayer to the Father in John 17. Keep them from the evil one. I know that as I go through this life, the struggles, the challenges, the, the, the things that we face... Christ is my advocate at the right hand of the Father. He is pleading my case. He's pleading for strength. He's pleading for ongoing forgiveness. I know that my, I will never ultimately fall. When I and you are one that Christ Jesus has made his own, he has secured us. And he is going to intercede with his father. And he is going to continue to pour out upon us grace upon grace upon grace. And lead us from strength to strength and victory to victory in our faith as we walk in obedience to him. Oh, Psalm 22 says this in Psalm 22 verse 7 and 8. Even as David is speaking... He, as, as God is oft pleased to do, as David is bemoaning his own struggles, filled with the Spirit, he oft speaks, speaks prophetically. And in Psalm 22, 7 and 8, he says this, All who see me mock me. And we saw that happening. It actually happened far more to Christ than it really ever did to David. They make their mouths at me, and they wag their heads. You remember the reading earlier? He thought he was something. He said he was this. You know, they claimed, we thought, nothing. And, and at times it just astounds me because every single thing that they mocked Christ about. You say that you could rebuild the temple in three days? You saved others, save yourself? You say that God is your father? All of the ways that they tested him and mocked him were things that were true. And yet, like a lamb to the slaughter, was silent. You know, I, it, there are so many ways that Christ is and will always be superior to me. 
I think if I was there, I don't know if I could have been so silent. You will see. Someday you will understand. Right now I'm bearing this. But someday. But not Jesus. He took it. He took it all. And he bore it silently. Knowing the purposes of God. And it says this. Verse 8. He trusts in the Lord. Let him deliver him. Let him rescue him. For he delights in him. That same mocking. Right there in Psalm 22. Exactly what they were saying to Jesus. And Psalm 22 verse 16 to 18 says this. For dogs encompass me. A company of evildoers encircle me. Again, in the context of dogs, that would be a reference to Gentiles in, that, in the Jewish context. They have pierced my hands and my feet. This never happened to David, so you know. <laughs> I can count all my bones. They stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them. And for my clothing, they cast lots. All of this, what a remarkable thing when we see the definite plan of God in every specific detail. But this definite plan was a definite plan with promise. The promise he would rise from the dead. The promise that in him there is the forgiveness of sin. In him there is peace. In him we are made whole. Second thing. I want to draw our attention to as we consider this, still back over now in Matthew 27, is briefly, let's consider those dynamic physical, the dynamic physical power portrayed. I'm often astounded at these, and we mention it from time to time. But to slow down and, and look at verse 45 and a few others, it says, now from the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth hour. Suddenly, as Christ is on the cross, the sun is no longer giving its light. Now, don't ask me for the science involved. Was it extinguished? Was, it, was there a veil covering it? What, what happened? Here's what happened. There was no darkness. I mean, there was darkness and no light. How God did it, that's known to him. That it was dark. Now, some people say, it's amazing that what a coincidence the death of Christ coincided with an eclipse. You know, well, yeah, even more astounding, an eclipse that lasted three hours? That doesn't happen unless the sun stopped in its place. Which God can do. Actually, if God wants to, he can make the sun go backwards. Who else can do that? But it's interesting because here is, we see that there is darkness over the land for three hours. Oh, how interesting to see it because your mind begins to run in those three hours of darkness to the teaching of Christ. Where Jesus himself says in John three nineteen, and this is the judgment. The light has come in the world, and people loved darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. John 8, 12, Jesus says again to them, 
It says, and again speaking to them, says, I am the light of the world. And so it's just an interesting parallel that he who is the light of the world, he who is the light of life, while he who was the light of the world was being crucified, while he who was without sin was made to be sin for us, while he bore our sins in his own body on the tree, darkness prevailed. Further, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In John 9, 5, Jesus again says, as long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. And he reminds his disciples, and I think they must have thought of this in John 12, verse 35. So Jesus said to them, the light is among you for a little while longer. What a reminder in, as he's being crucified and suddenly you are in darkness. The light was among us and now it's taken away. While you have the light, walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in darkness does not know where he's going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of the light. When Jesus had said these things, he departed. Oh, how glorious when we come down and, and, and begin to understand these things. Let me, let me move on to a few things and then I'll unpack them. So it was, there was darkness down in... Uh, Verse 51, Matthew 27, 51, says this. And behold, oh really, let me read verse 50. And Jesus cried out with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. So here, this is that moment that Jesus dies. That moment, remember, Hebrews chapter 1 verse 3 reminds us that Jesus is the exact representation of the Father. The one through whom everything was created. And he upholds the universe by the word of his power. So this one who upholds the universe is being put to death. And the scripture tells us there, and behold... Behold, first of all, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. So that temple veil, which is up higher than men can reach, and it's, it's made in such a way. Those who have been reading the McShane readings have recently read about its skillfully woven nature and the way that it's put together and the way that it's made. This is something that is durable and not going to tear not going to rip, certainly not on its own from top to bottom. There's no wind that blew it. It's in the center of the temple in the Holy of Holies. Not only did the, the, the curtain tear from top to bottom, but it tells us in verse 51 also, and the earth shook. Tremendous earthquake took place, and rocks were split. Just to get a sense of how strong this earthquake was, and then further, so we see the uh, temporary darkness, the temple veil torn, the trembling earth, and then the triumph over death. It says also, verse 52, the tombs were also opened. 
and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep and coming out of the tombs after his resurrection went into the holy city and appeared to many. So you have the temporary darkness, the temple veil, the trembling earth, the triumph over death. But look at, and, and those are the, the dynamic uh, physical power that is shown. But I, I want us to see the uh, deep, profound parallels. We've already really begun to see it with regard to the temporary darkness. But it's important for us to understand this. Not only was Jesus the light of the world, and that darkness was then taken away, he reminds us in Matthew chapter 5 when he was giving his sermon on the mount, there would be a time when that light of the world, really the truest light of the world, is taken away. But what did Jesus say in Matthew chapter 5 verse 14? You are the light of the world, a city set on a hill. That's why when Jesus says in John 36 that you may, uh, 12, 36, that you may become sons of light. In Ephesians, Paul tells the church at Ephesus, at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of the light. For the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And so there is that sense. Here Jesus is the light of the world because you know what he fully, perfectly embodied? All that was good and right and true. He was the way, the truth, and the life. He was always pleasing to the Father. There was no sin found in him. But he who was good and light, right and true in all points and in all moments on the cross, what did he take upon himself? All that was bad, all that was wrong, all that was false, he bore it as the light became darkness so that we might what? Become children of the light. And as children of the light, by his grace, we walk in the light. I love what it says also in Isaiah 60, verse 1 to 3. It says, arise, shine. For your light has come, for the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and the, his glory will be seen upon you. And the nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your rising. And those, the, the word of the scriptures in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, he causes the light of the glory of the gospel to shine. Isn't that right? Oh, that darkness in the face of he who is light. Further, with the temple veil. Again, uh, some may, sometimes we may wonder, what's the significance of the temple veil tearing? There is great significance because behind that inner veil in the temple is the place that we call uh, Two ways it could be phrased, the most holy place or the holy of holies. That was where the Ark of the Covenant of God was. That was where uh, the, what was called the mercy seat, which was the lid with the cherubim on there, where God would meet with Moses and speak with him from there. That was a place that no one was allowed to enter. It, it constantly spoke of the fact that 
Here is God. You cannot draw near to him. One of the things Moses said, God says to the children of Israel at one time when he says, you go, but I will not go with you. Because if I go with you, I will consume you because you are a wicked people, a stubborn people, a stiff-necked people. Well, it, it, it spoke of that separation. And really, in order to get into certain parts of the temple... Uh, Certain sacrifices had to be offered. You had to offer a sin offering and a burnt offering. And you would have to take it to the door of the temple and kill it there and then hand it over to the priest. And then there are certain ones that were done inside. And so only after uh, certain cleansing rituals of, of bathings and sacrifices could someone get this close. And then only the priests who are in the right clothes that have been consecrated after certain things could get this close. And regarding the Holy of Holies, only the high priest could get inside that veil. And he could only do that once a year after a host of things he had to do. And of course, we're reminded that they would even sew onto the high priest's clothing bells. So that as he would move around in there, in case he had failed, in case he was not perfectly purified, in case he died, they also had a rope tied around his waist that they could pull him out because no one could go in there if he died in there. It was, it was this constant symbol, we can't draw near to God. We are separated from him by our sin. All of the dead bulls and goats and calves could not bring reconciliation with God, could not allow us to draw near to God in, in, it, in this fullness. This veil was torn as Jesus Christ breathed out his last, providing a way of reconciliation where we now have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. We are in him declared righteous, so much so that the scripture will say, uh, will say it this way for us. Uh, let me read for you from uh, Hebrews chapter 9. It says this, when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things to come, then through the greater and more perfect tent not made with hands, he entered once for all into the holy place. So the other entered once for a short time. Jesus entered, entered once for all his people and once for all time. He brought an end to that separation, even between those who were physically God's people and the presence of God. And it says this further, he entered once for all into the holy place, not by the means of the blood of goats and calves, but by the means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Redemption accomplished, bought, reconciled, back to God. Hebrews 4 says it this way in verse 15, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect was tempted as we are, yet without sin, Verse 16 thus says, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Really, that's a similar phrase to the mercy seat where no one could come but the high priest because of Christ. We can go directly, spiritually, even as the temple represented 
into the presence of God. We don't go to a priest and say, you go talk to God for me. You go make intercession. We are able ourselves to go directly and plead with God, have mercy on me. God, hear me. God, forgive me. God, strengthen me. And even then, remember, like I said, they would tie a rope around them and they would go in with bells. because, And there was a little... Okay, here I go. Oh, boy. I hope I'm, I did everything right and I can come out. But we come with confidence. We can draw near with boldness. Because what Christ accomplished was perfect. Complete. Satisfying. Entire. Comprehensive. And glorious. Not only that. As the earth shook... We're reminded of that, that great shaking, but the scriptures will remind us of a few other things. Not only did it shake then, but when Jesus is going to be coming again, it's going to shake again. And not only will the earth shake, it's the heavens will shake, and the trumpet will sound, and Christ will come again. The king of, the, of creation died, and creation itself shuddered. Until he comes again, creation itself continues to groan, awaiting the revealing of the sons of God. But when he comes again, everything will be shaken. And he will manifest himself. And he will ultimately make all things new. All this will ultimately be brought to an end. And there will be a new heaven and a new earth wherein righteousness dwells. And lastly, not only is there more shaking to come, but we saw the dead were raised. I mean, to establish this historic event, it was not merely Jesus who rose from the dead, which is surely all that's enough and, and more important than any other. But to, to kind of put that definitive exclamation point on it, as Jesus rose from the dead, so did a host of saints who had already died. And the people in the holy city, which means Jerusalem, are, are, are wondering, what is going on? This guy died 100 years ago. This guy died 500 years ago. This guy died 40 years ago. What, what's going on? What are these people doing here? How are these people alive? And then the scripture reminds us also, in 1 Corinthians 15, Jesus appeared. He appeared to Cephas, and then he appeared to the 12, he appeared to James, then he appeared to more than 500 at once. So there could be no doubt, there's not some secret people who have made a little scheme and plan. Jesus has definitively displayed that he has power over death and the grave. The power over sin and death. Indeed, the scriptures remind us, as we heard this morning, and it says in uh, verse 3 of chapter 15, I delivered to you uh, as of first importance what I also received. Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. Because if Christ was not raised, then what is it? The scripture tells us in verse 14 of 1 Corinthians, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. 
Verse 17, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 16, if the dead are not raised, if not even Christ have been raised. Verse 19, if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people to be most pitied. But then verse 20 comes with that glorious de declaration. But in fact, Christ has been raised. Amen. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as death came by one man, by a man also comes the resurrection of the dead. That's why the scriptures declare to us these wonderful words in the Romans chapter 1, verse 4. And he, the speaking of Jesus, was declared to be the Son of God in power, according to the Spirit of holiness, by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen? He was proven to be the Son of God in power. This is so wonderful. Because what we do, what we believe, what we practice, what we obey, what we pursue, what we learn, all of it is sure, is true, it is verified, it is demonstrated, it is guaranteed. It is a more sure reality than anything that has ever taken place in the past. All the supposed accounts of wars and accounts of emperors and accounts of men... None of those things have half of the witness of Christ and his resurrection. There is none who has ever lived in the past who has had the impact through the centuries as Christ has had. There is none who has died and risen as Christ did. There was no other son of God but Christ. And even as he died and rose again, the scripture says... Why are you looking there? For he, as he has ascended, so also will he descend. This Christ who is risen, he is coming again. Everything that he said, the scripture said, were fulfilled. Everything that he said, he did. We can know this. Everything that he promised, everything that is in God's word, it will come true we stand not on shifting sand we stand not in the shadows we stand upon the solid rock in the glorious light of our lord and savior jesus christ let's pray